0: Alright, good morning. If you have a copy of the Bible, if you would open it to Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. Really glad that you're with us this morning. We're going to finish out the story of Samson together today with what is perhaps the most famous episode in his life. His interaction and sin with Delilah and the end of, of his life. As we get rolling, I have a confession to make. When I was a freshman in college at North Carolina State University, I watched WWF every night, all right? I know, the Lord saved me the summer after my freshman year in college, and so I grew out of those patterns, but every Monday night a group of men in our college dorm room would gather around the TV and watch uh, male soap operas, you know, all right? Uh, acted out. Now, here's, here's the thing about WWE as I reflect on my experience. There uh, was some excitement built into the storyline, but once you'd watched about three episodes of what was going down, it became incredibly predictable, right? Um, I just wondered when the Goldberg Spear was going to happen. And if you remember the Goldberg Spear, you remember that was an intense moment. Every episode crescendoed to this point where this big ball dude's that shoulders started like right where his ears, whatever this muscle is, started right here and went like at a ninety degree angle down to his shoulder. He would bludgeon someone. And celebrate his victory And all the guys would awkwardly clap around the TV screen This is the way it ended every time Now you were trying to figure out Like what cast of characters What was going to happen How bad of a scene he was going to be in Before he rose to conquer the enemy But at the end of the day It was quite predictable There was a certain plot There was a certain flow And it was going to end the same way every episode That's some of why If you know anything about me You know I'm not a movie guy I really don't like movies because I try to guess at the plot all the time and a lot of times I figure it out right? Like, Sixth Sense is the one that comes to mind. Like, I knew the little dude was dead. I mean, I just, I knew the story. I knew what was happening, and it was pretty, like, long before the ring fell to the floor, you just kind of had this sense. I know what's gonna happen in this movie. There are only a certain number of ways Keanu Reeves can unwire the bomb on the bus and get off in time before it all goes down, and once you've seen a few movies, you kind of know There's a limited number of plots, and there's a predictable pattern by which these plots are going to play out. If you remember two weeks ago, I entitled my sermon, That's Just Like God, because the very same thing is true throughout the Old Testament. There are certain predictable patterns rooted in God's character that frames his response to every situation that happens. And while the situations kind of ebb and flow and move, you can rest assured that God's character, his judgment, his holiness, his grace, are going to be on display at the end. And as we've seen throughout the book of Judges, as the people of God have begun to, to unravel, the stories end with God's restoration and his forgiveness, often almost in a frustrating fashion, you're like, God, what are you doing? These people don't deserve your act of forgiveness, but it's just like God to act that way. Now, the opposite is equally and also true, as we will see in our story this morning. There are certain predictable patterns of behavior in fallen men and women that you can anticipate before they happen. There are certain predictable patterns throughout the Old Testament, and there are certain predictable patterns in your life based on our inherited sin nature and our enslavement to the sin that so easily entangles that are quite predictable indeed. The uh, Samson story that we'll read this morning gives us insight, I hope, into the development of those predictable patterns and what we can do to bring God's grace to bear in our time of need. So let's pick up the story in Judges 16, verse 4. And unlike previous weeks, what I'm going to do is read the majority of this narrative together as one unit, and then we'll come back and talk about it rather than breaking it up a bit. So in verse 4, Judges 16, verse 4, after this he, this is Samson, loved a woman in the valley of Sarech whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one should subdue you. And Samson said to her, if you bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to them, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as the thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. But then Delilah said to him, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off, the ar- off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks, my head, with the web and fasten it tight with the pen, the first man bun, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pen and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I've been a Nazarite of God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent him and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lord of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at the other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now there is a lot going on in this story. And we could spend ample time plumbing plumbing the depths of the intricacies of the passage. There's a lot that we don't know about this episode. Specifically who Delilah is, what the relationship is. The secret of Samson's strength seems to be insider knowledge to the scriptures. insider knowledge to us who are reading the scriptures, but a mystery to those much like the riddles of the previous chapters. But what we do know is that this chapter, this episode frames for us one who was positioned for greatness and because of his sin and foolishness did not realize the purposes and plans God had for him. He failed in the accomplishment of the mission God had given him because of some predictable patterns of sin that we see running throughout Samson's life and I think overlay our experience quite well. Let me give you three predictable patterns that we observe in Samson's experience and we observe in our own fight with sin. The first of those being this, Sin that is predictable in light of the fall. Sin that is predictable in light of the fall. And here's what I mean by that. There are certain, sorry, wow, there are certain actions, behaviors, sin manifestations that we observe that are the predictable outworking of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is going to say it this way. He cautions first, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Then he says this in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Yet God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to, to endure it. What I want to zero in on is this phrase, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. As we consider sin and temptation in our lives and in the lives of the biblical characters, one of the things that we see is that when you boil sin down to its base components, it's really quite simple indeed. You are not, nor am I, very creative with our sin. At the end of the day, there are certain built-in manifestations of sin as a result of the sinful choice that Adam and Eve made in the garden, and as a result, the inherited sin nature that we are born into the world with. You might, uh, in our house, we have a toddler, and that toddler does certain predictable behaviors based on her toddlerdom, all right? Now, I might get frustrated at my little girl's messiness or the fact that she's a bit clumsy and falls down the steps fairly often. She doesn't make the wisest decisions or when she wants her way, she yells rather than ask politely and respectfully, right? And while I am trying to discipline her and help her grow in godliness in these actions, there are certain predictable patterns that come from a two-year-old. This is what a two-year-old does. And in the same fashion, there are certain—it may be wise if I grab a handheld if we can. Uh, Is this one working? Yeah, this, friends, is going to be an episode uh, that we're going to remember, all right? You don't know the difference in speaking into a mic here and holding a microphone. So if I make it through this sermon while holding a microphone, we're all going to applaud because it's going to be special, all right? Um, So there are certain predictable patterns that we would expect out of a two-year-old. And in the same fashion, there are certain predictable patterns that we would expect in the lives of all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Core to those are going to be the expression of pride. No one is going to be stunned when they see people make mistakes or succumb to temptation on the basis of a prideful heart. This is a predictable pattern of sin in all the sons and daughters of Eve, of Adam and Eve. Sexual immorality would be another one of those. This is a predictable pattern of sin as a result of the fall. Anger. Vengeance that we see in the Cain and Abel episode following sin in Genesis 4. Predictable pattern of sin as a result of the consequences of Adam and Eve's choice in the garden. We should, and and this is where I want to press us in way of application, we should anticipate and be on guard for the enemy who prowls like a roaring lion in certain areas because we know that they are predictable. Okay? I know as a parent, if I'm doing my job and I'm not always doing it well, that it is predictable for my toddler to walk off the steps without stepping down them and fall on her face. For that reason, I should be alert and attentive in those behavioral areas. And this is the same thing that we should see in the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve based on the predictable patterns. Secondly, there are sins, temptations, that are predictable in light of your position, sins that are predictable in light of your position. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let's take a left in your Bibles back to Moses' instructions to the people of God on the brink of the promised land. It's fascinating for me as I read through the Old Testament scriptures the number of times that the authors are able to point forward and say, you're going to do this, and this is going to be the result. How can they do that? Because human behavior is quite predictable. And so in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14, we read these words. When you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you take it over and live in it and then say, I will appoint a king over me like all the nations surrounding me so what is what's moses saying here you're going to get in the land and i know what you're going to do you're going to look to the nations and you're going to want a king just like they do and he warns in verse 15 you must without fail select over you a king whom the lord your god will choose from among your fellow citizens you must appoint a king you may not designate a foreigner who is not a fellow israelite moreover he must not accumulate horses for himself Or allow the people to return to Egypt to do so, for the Lord has said you must never again return that way. Furthermore, he must not marry many wives, lest his affections turn aside. He must not accumulate much silver or gold. When he sits on his royal throne, he must make a copy of the instruction on a scroll given to him by the Levitical priest. It must be with him constantly, and he must read it as long as he lives so that he may learn and revere the Lord his God and observe all the words of the instruction and these statutes in order to carry them out, so that he will not exalt himself above his fellow citizens and turn from the commandment right or left, so that he and his descendants may enjoy many years ruling over the kingdom of Israel. It is as if Moses reads the king's mail of what's going to come. He says, you're going to get in the land, you're going to look at the nations, you're going to appoint a king, and here's exactly what the king is going to do. He's going to rule over you, he's going to pursue the wealth of the nations, he's going to take foreign uh, wives, he's going to uh, have a propensity to forget the law of God, so he's going to have to keep it before him night and day. Why can the writers of Scripture make these types of observations? Because there are certain temptations that are predictable in light of the position that these individuals will hold. Moses knows kings are going to be prone to succumb to wealth and power and foreign women. right? And so he says, be on your guard in these areas. The same then is true for our brother Samson in this passage. He is in a position of influence. And though he is not a king, he does exactly what Moses has warned the kings are going to do we don't know a lot about Delilah whether he meets her this road connects this valley connects where the Israelites are with where the Philistines are so most say that Delilah was a Philistine woman whether she was a Philistine or acquainted with the Philistines she's clearly out of bounds for Samson and he takes her as his wife G- Satan knows That this is a strong man who has experienced the spirit of God falling upon him. And how do you get after his strength? You get after it through what he loves. And what he loves is women that he should not. Which is quite predictable in light of Samson's position. Which forces the question. What are the predictable temptations and patterns of sin that go with your unique position at this season in life. Few of us in this room are kings. In fact, I don't think we have any this morning. Yet we are all positioned by the hand of God in certain places where there are unique temptations that face each one of us uniquely. And it is wise for us to be aware of how your position provokes certain temptations. No one is going to be stunned if pride is an issue for a wealthy businessman, nor if irritability is an issue for a stay-at-home mom. These are going to be predictable patterns of temptation and sin in light of your unique position. And then thirdly, certain sins are predictable, one in light of the fall, two in light of your position, and three in light of your past history. Sins that are predictable in light of your past history. It's almost comical how we see this played out in Samson's life. We've already seen in chapters 14 and 15 a situation that mirrors exactly what happens in the Delilah episode. right? Taking of women, riddle, giving over to the Philistines, consequences same exact scenario that plays out again for us in chapter 16 and oh and by the way we have a little excursus in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16 where he runs after a prostitute so there are certain predictable sin patterns in Samson's life that should have cued him into I'm prone for failure here Samson is presented to us in the Scriptures as a man with extraordinary strength that is counterbalanced by extraordinary stupidity. He should have learned from his failures, and because he did not, he suffers the consequences of that folly. He is a man who simply cannot learn from his past. Which then demands the question for you and I, what are the unique areas where God has said to you specifically, you better watch out? If you look back on your life's history, where are the glimmers of God's grace in episodes where you have fallen to sin and faced the consequences of those choices that should serve as a consistent check engine light on the dashboard for you that says you, friend, are uniquely susceptible here? Remember the words of James. This is James 1, 14 and 15. As James recounts the personal temptation that we all face, he says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Now certainly, James is pointing out the personal responsibility we bear for our sinful choices and the death that results. But I think it's also interesting, the personal pronoun that's applied through that, that's specific to each individual. He is enticed by his own sin, and when that sin runs its course, it leads to death. So we should ask, Samson seems to be unwilling to do, what is my sin that tempts me, and how am I lured and enticed by my specific evil desires? Verse 20 of our text this morning in Judges chapter 16 shows the outworking of James 1 in Samson's life. This verse, let's read again James, uh, Judges 16, verse 20. We've seen this pattern in Samson's experience. He lies to Delilah philistines come upon him he's able to stand up and snap the cords just like they were over fire but in verse 20 she said the philistines are upon you samson and he awoke from his sleep and said i'm going to go out just like the other times and shake myself free but he did not know that the lord had left him that's the summary statement of this entire chapter The Lord had left him. In previous chapters, we've seen the Spirit of God rush upon him, and now Samson thinks, I'm going to get away with it, and yet the Spirit of the Lord is nowhere to be found. These consequences then serve as a judgment for failing to heed the patterns of temptation and as God's grace in Samson's life. They expose him to his folly. He simply can't go out like he has before and the same unfortunately is true in our lives that the consequences for our failure to heed predictable patterns from the fall predictable patterns from our position and predictable patterns from our own experience lead to consequences we suffer the judgment of God and those consequences are meant to alert us again as an act of God's grace before it is too late that we would take heed lest we fall. But then in verse 22, we'll pick up where I stopped reading earlier, this just-like-God behavior. The hair on his head had begun to grow again. If we're watching a movie, we've got the music building in the background because something good is getting ready to happen in light of God's character. Verse 23, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God and to rejoice and they said our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand and when all the people saw him they praised their God for they said our God has given our enemy into our hand the ravager of our country who has killed many of us and their hearts were merry and they said call Samson that he may entertain us so they called Samson out of prison and he entertained them And they made him stand between the pillars. Now we know the secret that the Philistines don't know. Why has Samson been captured? It is not the greatness of Dagon, but the absence of Yahweh. It, God's spirit has left and allowed Samson to be captured. And the people are celebrating this false god. Their hearts are merry. And so God as an act of vindication of his name, allows them to orchestrate the events that are getting ready to lead to their judgment. Because God is not going to let somebody else get praise for the thing that he did. Dagon's not going to get credit for this deal. This is the very same God that, uh, that, that later, the ark is going to come into the house of Dagon. He's sitting up on the pedestal. They bring the ark before Dagon, and what happens? Falls down. Arms break off, falls down, head breaks off. End of the scene, we've just got a bust of Dagon left. This statue is no match for the presence of God. And this is the very same point that God's going to make here. Don't give praise to somebody else for something that I'm doing. This is what the people have been doing. So uh, verse 26, and Samson said to the young men who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which this house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked upon Samson while he entertained. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the middle two pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. What a tragic summary statement. He more in his death than he does in his life. And then his brothers and his family came down and took him, and they brought him up, and they buried him. And he judged Israel for 20 years. This is the summary of this brother's life who begins to deliver Israel, but we must conclude as a massive failure in all, for all intensive purposes. He fails, and God, in an effort to vindicate his name, allows him to accomplish more in his death than he did in his life. Now, the question for us is, why did the writer of the scriptures preserve this story for four chapters? Like, what's the point? In this book, why did the scriptural author see fit to... to hold up the life of Samson for us for this extended period of time when the culmination of his life is really a big letdown. The motive, it seems, is that the fall of Samson is positioned, it is held up as a mirror for what is going to happen in Israel nationally. The fall of Samson and the fall of Israel mirror one another. They are both from nothing to a world power. They are shown grace upon grace, given opportunity time after time to turn from their sin and turn to the living God, and yet they fail to do so. At the end of Solomon's life, we read this prayer, and quite frankly, no one knows whether the end these prayers at the end, are they a demonstration of repentance? Or is our brother just looking to get even? You took my eyes, I'm going to kill you. Any conclusion that we reach would be mere conjecture on the text. The, the Bible doesn't tell us. But what it does tell us, what it's meant to hold up to us, is that unless you turn to the true and living God, you will suffer a similar fate. It is meant to cause Israel to say, but for the grace of God, we're going to go the same way Samson did. But unfortunately, the people of God are blind to their sin, in the same way that Samson finishes his life. This is the same point that Jesus makes to the Pharisees many years later. You're blind guides. You're leading people astray. You can't see, and yet you're trying to lead others. This is why he consistently calls out to people who have eyes but can't see. Because the point is, allow the Samson lackadaisical story and conclusion, to hold up for you a mirror that allows you to see. The story of Samson and the story of Israel serves the church, you and I, in at least two ways. One, it is going to, or it should, remind us all of our need for the only one who could withstand the temptations that are faced in a fallen world. It should remind us of our need for Christ, the one who withstood temptation from a very predictable adversary and in some very predictable ways. You're hungry, here's some bread. You're God, chunk yourself off and let the angels come and rescue you. You want the kingdoms of the world, I'll give you a fast track to that position. And the only one who was sufficient to withstand the enemy's attacks in these predictable ways was the Christ, son of the living God, who did so, who lived the life that we could not live, knowing that we would succumb to the same predictable temptations that Samson fell to and that Israel would fall to. And yet, secondarily, this story warns us of a similar fate. One, it reminds us of our need for Christ, the one who could withstand temptation, and two, it warns us of a similar fate. Milton, writing on this story, the great poet, pictured Samson at the end of his life ravished, long hair that had grown down, and being consulted by his Job-like friends who come to him and reflect upon his life, and offer him encouragement before his death. Milton, before Samson's ultimate tragic end, writes this, Samson is a mirror of our fickle state. And this is the effect that Samson should have for us. His demise should serve as a mirror of our fickle state, lest we suffer the same tragic end that he did. Writing in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul makes an astounding claim about those of us who are in Christ Jesus. He says that God before the foundation of the world chose us to be holy before him. That we would have a holiness at least on two levels. One, a holiness that's declared about us based not on our works and on our performance but based on the performance of Jesus and given to us as a grace gift he chose us and determined the outcome by which we would be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus standing before him not guilty for our sins but that holiness is not only holiness declared it's also to be holiness demonstrated It is holiness given to us, imputed as a gift, and as a result of that grace gift, it is then to be demonstrated in a life that fights temptation and grows in holiness, motivated by the grace of God. Hear the words of 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter doesn't point back to that Levitical premise and say, "Chunk it out. Jesus has done the work. Don't worry about holiness, but rather he applies it to those who have received the grace gift of the righteousness that Christ has earned on our behalf. And he says, as a result of that, now, You pursue holiness. So how does the story of Samson and the failure of Israel and the obedience of Christ help us pursue holiness in the face of predictable temptations? Let me give you three challenges quickly as we close. The first is this, that we would recognize our predictable patterns of sin. That we would recognize our predictable patterns of sin that we would, by the grace of God, do mental inventory of our hearts to ask the question, where am I uniquely at risk? And that the spirit of the living God, who possesses all the wealth of wisdom in the world, would speak to you clearly and say, watch out here. And we can use the predictable patterns of the fall, of our position, and of our past to inform where we might be Pray to Satan's attacks. Secondly, that we would repent. The mark of holiness in the church isn't the avoidance of sin, but it's the ability of recognizing sin and repenting quickly. Samson's prayer models for us a glorious truth about God. I commented earlier. We don't know. Was our brother repenting? Was he just wanting to get even? But God, as an act of vindicating his name, came through. He was near to Samson even in his failure. And if you are like me, we often have this, we often read the scriptures and I say, Samson didn't deserve you to do a thing for him. That You should have toasted that brother, right? Why in the world do we end with this hair growing him vindicating people and coming out looking like the hero because that's just like God. God is near to those who think they are failures because they have succumbed to temptation one too many times. Would you this morning from the story of Samson be reminded that the Lord is close. He is near and he turns his attention to those who confess their sins, Repent of them and bring them into the light. And then lastly, that we would be the kind of people that fight. We would recognize our temptations. We would repent as we succumb to those temptations. And that we would fight those temptations. That we would, by the grace of God, bring God's wisdom to bear on our predictable patterns of sin rather than excusing them that we would kill them by the grace of God. C.S. Lewis, in the masterful way that only he could, pictures this in his writing in the book The Great Divorce, where he pictures a ghost who has been kept out of heaven because he wants to enter with a red lizard of his former nature on his shoulder. And the ghost constantly scolds this upon the ghost's shoulder. The angel asked the ghost if he would like this lizard of sin to be silenced. And here's how C.S. Lewis summarizes the exchange. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, the ghost said, retreating. Don't you want him killed? The angel said. You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. But it's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, there, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please. I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure that I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far more effective than killing it. To which the angel replies, the gradual process is of no use at all. Friends, would we be reminded this morning that dabbling in sin and temptation sets us up for Samson like failure? And would we be aggressive to apply Paul's words in Romans 8 that we would kill sin, as John Owen masterfully says, before sin kills us? That we would fight by the power of God's grace at work within us to battle the temptations that are predictable for us, lest at the end of our lives or somewhere along the way somebody looks at us and says, I saw that coming. I saw that coming. Would we be the kind of people that see it coming first and by the power of God's spirit fight with all the power of the spirit of God at work in us that allowed Samson to kill the lion It lives in us. If it can kill a lion through Samson, it can kill your sin through the power of Christ. So may we be the kind of people who fight. Would you join me as we pray? Our God, we bow our heads with a recognition that we are incredibly susceptible to very predictable patterns of sin. And we read the Samson story and we know what's coming. And then we live our lives and, and in, a, in a very real way we know what's coming and yet we allow it just to run its course. Would you, by your grace, awaken our hearts this morning to the predictable patterns, predictable ways that we are susceptible to Satan's attack? would you bring that to the forefront of our minds this morning? And if we are one who is continuing to dabble in those very predictable patterns, would you, by your grace, prompt repentance? Would we confess our sin before you, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness to those who are wanting To allow it to live longer, would you convict them of the need to put sin to death? And would you, by your spirit, continue to hone our attentiveness to the ways that we are prone to fall? And would you allow your grace and your spirit to minister to our hearts with the encouragement that you are near to us? No temptation has overtaken us, but what is common to man and you in your grace will provide a way of escape. Would we take that way of escape even this morning? Do you direct our hearts to repentance, knowing that you are a God who loves to forgive, so that your name is vindicated in our day and you are made famous? We ask for Christ's sake.